Welcome to the Questions for the Sages podcast. I'm Michael Scherer. Today I spoke with Raghunath Das, who has come to the nation's capital to transform the healthcare system in America. We discussed his plan, his early years in the Hare Krishna movement, and much more. You can hear the Questions for the Sages podcast on questionsforthesages.com, the Questions for the Sages Facebook page, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Thanks to the Hare Krishna community of Potomac, Maryland, for making this podcast possible. Welcome to Questions for the Sages, a podcast from the Washington, D.C. area. I am Michael Scherer, and today I'm talking with Raghu. Is that pronounced right? Raghu Jufre, my full uh, Krishna name is Raghunath, but most people call me Raghu. Oh, you're Raghunath. Raghu is good. Nice well, to nice you. to meet you. We're, we're, we're um, uh, recently met, and you have some interesting political ideas. We're at the temple. Uh, we met here on the grounds of the temple. It's a Sunday afternoon. And uh, I thought that what you were talking about was too interesting to pass up. Well, I've done 11 books on Vedic economics. Um, uh-huh. And that is a, um, a recognizing the interface between my upbringing uh, in India uh, as the oldest of the second generation of the Hare Krishnas. And then uh, taking that as a missionary boy and youth around the world several times, having talked to... I don't know, 15, 20,000 people at that go, and then making my way into the world and how that interfaces with my own upbringing and recognizing that so many of the issues that we had um, in the Hare Krishna movement are duplicated in society at large and recognizing those traits and then beginning to apply my experience to the issues of the day. Okay. Now multiplied with the philosophy. Learned for profit. If you're seeing the same issues within ISKCON as you're seeing outside of ISKCON, have you have you resolved the issues within ISKCON already? Uh, well, they're sort of yeah, it's sort of the same thing. Um, I say that the Hare Krishna movement is what you get when you have bhakti without varnashram. Okay, well, uh, I'm sorry, I, I should clarify who our audience is. Uh, the audience is, are, are not Hare Krishnas. They're, oh. they're people in general, out and about in, okay. the, uh, in the world, okay. who uh, may not know what you're talking about. And so what is Bhakti and what's Varnashram? Well, why don't we start with this. Uh, the four pillars of this, uh, the social economic program of, of, the, of, of the Vedic culture. Of East on. Indian culture. You're speaking for the East Indians now. I am speaking for Vedic culture, and as taught by the Hare Krishna movements and teacher Prabhupada. Where is this Vedic culture? Uh, you know, um, the ground zero, if you will, of Vedic culture is in India. But but where in India? Well, throughout India. So you have, uh, you have strong elements of it there in Vrindavan. You have other elements of it there in uh, Rajasthan, Jaipur. Uh, you have strong elements of it there in South India. So, so it's maintained primarily around the communities of the temples. And what you're saying is that um, there are cultural and economic systems around the temples in India that somehow contain solutions to everyone else's problems? 
That is a beautiful, that is a pompous, beautiful way of saying it. I like that. Um, well, let's start with them and then people will see. Okay. So, uh, the four principles are. Okay. Number one, self-sustainability. Okay. And I think that's pretty much, it's, it's accepted as universal today. The sense of, of urgency for it wasn't felt until today on a global level. Okay. Now, if, if. If it's self-sustainability is one of the major principles, then why does this culture only exist around temples in India? Obviously, it was not able to sustain itself. Well, just the opposite. The temples have managed to survive millennia of, you know, the most gruesome, horrific, um, uh, you know, oppositions, whether it was, you know, Muslim massive slaughtering or the British there undermining in their own imperial ways, such as through mass starvation and war and things of that nature. So there's a reason why they're the only 5,000-year-old or 3,000, 3,500-year-old culture that's still an active... Chinese living. culture is 5,000 years old. Well, that's the reason I said one of the only. Okay. Some people said the Egyptian culture still live with the Illuminati as an example. Wow. But you still have... Yeah. You still I have, don't know. I haven't been to those meetings. Oh. <laughs> based on the... <laughs> Based on the peripherals that I've heard, so there, there's uh, there's different elements at play, but um, it's also one of the the strongest and that strongest strongest living cultures of that of of that antiquity, primarily because of the temples that has been able to uh, done in a, a great job for the most part of maintaining um, uh, the core value and cultural expressions of their of their heritage okay okay so so uh, I gather that the temples in the geographic area of India contain some organizing principles that you feel need to become more widespread uh, it's principles and application so when you take Indian uh, when you take East Indians and you bring them to other countries uh, for example, they always excel. Um, it's not just a biological consideration. It's in large part a cultural one. So the cultural principles by which they live dramatically enhance their um, ability to... Um, yeah. Well, they don't... I would say they definitely uh, statistically uh, excel. Uh, not everyone does. And I would say that statistically there are other cultures that that do a very good job of um, surviving and advancing uh, Jewish, for example. Um, so uh, why would you prefer this? What to you is a foreign culture? Now, you were raised in India. Uh, that puts an interesting spin on things. But why, why prefer this to, say, Judaism? Well, I think Judaism is a great example. It's another temple-based um, community. Uh -huh. uh, so those temples play an extraordinary um, uh, role in maintaining the intergenerational um, continuity of, of cultural practice and principle. But you have a preference for uh, the Vedic model. Um, I'm, I'm best uh, versed in the Vedic model as compared to any others. But in addition to that, um, and, and I can't say this with absolute um, authority to defend it, but my initial response is, is, is that they have a depth and um, scope uh, that allows for a versatility and a 
precision that I have not seen possible as an interface to the modern world like we get with Vedic culture. Okay, let's go back to the four pillars. The first pillar was sustainability. Self-sustainability, number one. Okay. The second one is what they call Varnashram. So let me start by saying sustainability, that's our economic model. So um, uh, the economic model for uh, conservatives, as an example, is free markets. Uh-huh. And the economic model for Democrats is uh, government intervention, you know, redistribution. So that's our economic model. Whether you're Democrat, Republican, anarchist, monarchist, whatever your economic model you want to go with, keep itself sustainable. Well, there's no one who's against sustainability. Um, the priority of self-sustainability, as much as we can take it for granted today, was not considered to be a priority as it has become just in the last five years somewhat in the last 10, but really come into focus in the last five. So there's a, a, a modern, I mean, when I say modern, I mean, it's more recent than modern. It's, it's, it's a very, very recent uh, concern with sustainability. And um, you're saying that um, the Vedic culture has uh, always had this value? Uh, it, was, it was an opening premise of what their economics was about. What can you do that is self-sustainable? And so um, um, they have their they have their tools of the trade for doing that after the fact, but that was an opening premise. Whereas self sustainability was done as a matter of survival in previous eras, but in the modern world, self sustainability was somewhat thrown out the window in the name of development and you know, economic development and progress. Um, so as the Industrial revolution. Um, the industrial occurred. revolution had absolutely, it was like we are here to use up as much nature as we possibly can because there was still, you know, it was still a smaller world. So, you know, when you get into, you know, a state like Pennsylvania, that was like, you know, that's, you know, almost as big as like the countries that they knew from Belgium or England or something. It's like, oh my God, it's a whole world. And now we recognize how small that so called world is now that we've lost so much of our forests and species and animals, etc. Okay. Uh, one is first pillar sustainability. The first is is sustainability. What's the second? The second one is our policy platform. Oh, is Varnashram? Dharma. No, that is our Varnashram. that is our ideological platform. Okay. So we can start with uh, the ideological platform. Well, we we, we actually we're, we're, let's let's work through the pillars and then we'll get to the platform because we well just so people understand what the correlation is. So the economic okay. platform of Democrats, government intervention versus free markets for Republicans. Ours is self-sustainability. And when you say ours, who are you talking about? Well, um, to be um, grand about it, I'll say those are the motive, those are the motive goodness. Oh, them. The them. Yeah. So that, the them. And that uh, finds a special anchor and focus in Vedic culture. But it's there and true of anybody uh, working in cultural um, uh, foundations of goodness, that they'll naturally uh, gear, uh, uh, they'll naturally favor things that are self-sustaining. Um, whereas things. Wait a minute. Are you saying that this is the preferred economic and social system of the good people? Um, the Vedic model. Is, is that there's three primary influences, goodness, passion, and ignorance. Uh-huh. And that they tend towards uh, uh, 
preferences of lifestyle, of activities, of entertainment based upon the mode that you're in. So the, the results of the mode of goodness as, as a nature is self-sustainability, it's maintenance. The results of passion is progress, is development, is getting ahead. Activity. Um, activity. And so there are some cultures that are special, you know, America is a little bit more driven by, we need more, you know, that, mm -hmm. that, that progressive. Um, and then there's cultures, or, or rather the influence of ignorance is one of uh, destructive. And um, the, the, the Eastern perception, mm -hmm. or, or the Eastern take on these, is that they actually work together. So you have well, somebody you, that well, comes in and builds, well, not and only then you have somebody else that comes and maintains, and then it's seasonal, so then somebody else will come and sort of, you know, yes. tear it all down, making room for the next season. Well, they're inseparable. That they only exist together. That I don't know. I, I haven't. I haven't. You can't, I haven't. You can't divide the world into three kinds of people. There, are, every person has a mixture of, of goodness, passion, and ignorance. Um, there are those that favor certain modes over the over others. And well, so well, we're entering, actually quickly entering uh, uh, um, dangerous territory. Um, well, not it's dangerous if you don't know the proper application. Anything is dangerous without knowing its well, proper application. Okay, so who, who, what are some examples of some ignorant cultures? Um, the, what, the context of ignorance that we have is always as a negative. But an example of, you know, Tomasic is... Tomasic means ignorant. Means ignorant. But like the earth would be of ignorance. So things when... So as an example, when you have a culture that is too highfalutin, or rather that is, uh, has too much goodness, they get a little separated from the earth. They become highfalutin. And so they need the grounding with the earth. So the, the, the cultures of the earth would be an example of, tam of Tamasic. So farming is of the earth. It's of, it's of the, uh, the roots. It's of the tilling of the land, the turnover. But in terms of lifestyle, they would be things that we would consider to be a vice. So smoking, drinking, gambling, prostitution, those would be considered activities of ignorance because they destroy and unwind your good fortune. Okay, so there are some cultures that engage in destructive activities uh, uh, more so than others. Do you there, want to name any of these? Well, you see here in America where um, there are, you know, the, you, you had uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm -hmm. So that one seems to be a little bit more strongly geared towards intoxications and um, a uh, life that, uh, you know, they, they sort of make it out as sort of a, the, the uh, angst and, and torment of the artist's life of, you know, sex, you know. On, but also that was a passing period of American history. Was it? Yeah. So you don't think that we have the sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Uh, uh, not in, in the way it was in the 70s. I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I think that <laughs> as an example, I think porn is more of the um, formalization, institutionalizing what was of the 60s. I think the 60s was just sort of the, more of the, the primal opening, and now it's been institutionalized, for example, with 
Okay. Well, let's um, let's um, yeah, let's 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 bring some focus here. Um, well, you're taking these off on these, so I just wanted. Yeah. So and they're we, interesting for me to explore because I haven't. Yeah. yeah. I haven't but, had but to verbalize those considerations. Yeah, but let's let's focus on what it is. That, so, are you making a proposal? So yes. Yeah, so I can walk through. We can okay. walk through but them. What are quickly, you proposing? And then it might be easier to yes, ask the questions absolutely. after that because we can go. And I may directions. ask for clarification on the way, but I'll try not to divert you too so, far. So number one, our economic policy platform is self-sustainability and, and we are again well i've interfaced with with literally tens of thousands of people under hundreds of different circumstances but, but you said we so that could be those of india that can be uh you know that can be those like who's of my the school. group that you're with um at any given time it it you know i've worked with like for example i worked with guerrilla economics to do the research Specifically on lifestyle insurance. Okay, all right. So yeah. that would Sorry be that would be the one we. But let's, I've worked with the devotees as a missionary. <laughs> that, so there's an accumulative, you know, uh, there's been a circle. I've I've had a very wide circle. Okay. Now uh, let, uh, let's continue with the proposal. Okay. I, I apologize for these inter these interruptions. They may come per periodically, but okay. So. You're talking to a dyslexic, so it's my comfort zone. <laughs> I'm just not sure how coherent it will sound okay. for the poor people. I know. If, you know sort through this. I think we've maybe uh, lost about 80% of the people yeah. by now. Okay, so you're, you're, dyslexic. you're proposing something. Okay, we're proposing these four pillars. We um, are proposing this. Okay. We, are, we are proposing. Actually, when I say we, I mean Prabhupada and Krishna. I, I really feel that you know, my, you're, my you're spiritual master and the Lord. I really feel that this is their work. I've dedicated myself. Okay. Um, this is an ex this is the old man's version of a young preacher boy traveling the world. And that's what you mean when you say we. When I say we, actually, yes, that has been the only constant, okay. and everything else has been a gift of. Okay. Of. And um, so you three have what? <laughs> the divine divinity, which hopefully we all have, um, or we should all have, uh, because. Uh, this is a this is a a, um, a puzzle of a thousand pieces. So the we is who I've gotten the different pieces from, and they've come from okay. hundred sources. Okay. So, um, uh, so we have the we. I'm sorry. It's just the way. We, sure. I'm right? sorry. It, it, it's ahead. also just a matter of, of uh, linguistic yeah. conditioning. Um, yeah. So uh, we have our economic platform. Uh, we have our uh, ideological platform. So in America, it's a choice between capitalism versus socialism, and one group says we're socialist, and the other side says you are uh, that is heresy for what America is about. America is about capitalism, and um, now when I say we in this context, we're talking about India. They have, you know, they're you're an Indian. Uh, it's really interesting to see the interplay between the Italian, the American, the Californian, the Hawaiian, and the Indian. They've all played sort of an equal. Time Where were you raised? I was born in LA, third generation Italian American. Okay. In LA. Yeah. Uh, a product of the 60s, um, which meant that I was being taken care of by my grandmother because my parents were a little busy. Mm. Uh, so I had that. Do formal, they remember the 60s? Uh, uh, they, they're, they're mascots of the 60s. Well, that's they, why I asked. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's. I mean, a lot of the context of the 60s to them is how it played out in affecting me and their marriage. So that, that is what gave them context of why they weren't happy with it. They weren't able to function in the ways that were most ideal for a family, which is really interesting because family is such a rooting, grounding, 
um, context for life. But yes, they remember it. Um, so, uh, yes. I, so you were born So I in... spent some quality time with my Catholic Italian grandma. Okay. And I really got to... Did she pray the rosary? Oh, I mean, she's Italian. I mean, Did you pray the rosary? Um, I, I recognized it at, you know, because I was just four or five years old, yeah. six years old by then. So I recognized it as, the, as a spiritual practice in whatever, you know, way that a sort of oblivious five or six year old would. But sure. it created a sense of identity. I, I yeah. had, you know, identified as a Catholic Italian uh, right until my, you know, until I married my Jewish New York's you know, Russian New York Jewish wife. When was that? Many years later, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Okay, so we're in LA. You're with your grandmother. So no, I'm actually in the East Coast with my grandmother. Born in LA, I was there for about four years with my mom and dad. Okay. In California, born in Hollywood. Spent about uh, three, four years in Rochester, New York, with my uh, grandmother, and then my mother went and joined the Hare Krishnas when I was eight years old. So oh, then I went and okay. was at their boarding school in Dallas. Uh, of which she was an active. About uh, what year was that? That was seventy-eight. Okay. Excuse me. That was uh, that was seventy-three. Okay. Um, so I had about four years there, and in or almost five years there, and in that time, traveled to um, m- many of the temples throughout America, which, for its day, people still hadn't started really getting out of their towns. People lived and died in their same neighborhood, in their same home. Yeah. That was the tail end of coming out of that. The hippies sort of broke out and made us one continental USA. Before that, it was really you lived and died in your same town. We were like the equivalent of villages. Um, but so you, that was but, very exciting. But you had a, a sort of a more nomadic existence. Well, I think that I think the Hare Krishnas uh, could fairly be explained, at least in certain phases of their development, as nomads. Yeah. They're nomadic. Uh, they're sort of like luxury nomads, though, because they have really nice temples, or they used to have really nice temples to uh-huh. to land on. So, but you, you were could, about you were about eight. I came when I was uh, I I remember turning eight, so I had actually come at the tail end of seven. Okay. So I believe it must have been February of like seventy three. And that was in Dallas. That was in Dallas, and then I and you were with your mother. I was with my mother, and then I know I made it out to L.A. by. Uh, December 73, because that's when Prabhupada went to Dallas. Excuse me, went to Los Angeles, and I was there. So the pictures with me and Prabhupada is uh, there in 73 in Los Angeles. I do remember so that. Uh, I remember the, I mean, I've, I've had this uh, childhood adoration of Prabhupada, and so that, was, that, that common thread has been active in my life. So I have a sense of the sensations of that, and I remember specific incidences mm-hmm. more clearly than almost any other of my childhood because of it. So, um, how long were you traveling with your mother uh, um, along among the Hare Krishna temples in America? Just different things would come up. Yeah. So you know, when you know for for the summer break, we would go from Dallas to L.A. for uh, Krishna's birthday. We went to what from Dallas to West Virginia. Uh, Janmashtami Vishnu John was there singing for mm. um, for going to India. My mother was doing collections in New Orleans, so we got on the buses with Vishnu John. So and Vishnu John was a famous singer. Vishnu John um, was the f- was the first one to um, uh, 
sort of add a soft, light rock to um, the simple Hare Krishna okay. tunes. So he was really the first one to, he was, you know, as Elvis sort of changed, you know, music over into rock, he was the first one to start. Interesting. I don't want to say Americanizing, because it wasn't quite Americanizing, but he was the first one to do it. And the next ones to do it actually were uh, the Beatles with, you know, George Harrison with the Radha Krishna album. Yeah. I mean, that I, I've been trying to find what the pigeonhole is for the Radha Krishna album, My Sweet Lord. Mm-hmm. Well, My Sweet Lord is an example of that genre of music, but the Govindam prayers of, of the Radha Krishna, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it was called the Radha Krishna Temple. Yeah. And so the music there was an original sound that's never been duplicated. And I what, call it transcendental. Well, this was with Vishnujan? That was, the Radha Krishna Temple was... The, was uh, that was George, recorded in England, Yeah, right? that was George Harrison. And at, at Apple, maybe. Um, but Apple Studios, yes. Mm. So that musical transition, Vishnujan, mm-hmm. was that combination of... Uh, so... Uh, George Harrison was more of the rock and roll with an Eastern influence. Yeah. Vishnu John was uh, Eastern music with a soft Western influence. Okay. So yeah. The... And how did you like that music? Well, anytime you have a musical revolution, it it's, it, it seems to interface with some other revolution going on. So mm. that became the soundtrack of the Hare Krishna movement. But what about you? That was my rock and roll. It oh, okay. was my own. Okay. Especially we all wanted to be. Um, and so I uh, stand today as one of the only people playing his tunes. So mm-hmm. as the new generations have come in and have actually learned the orthodox, authentic, you know, traditional Bengali uh, Hare Krishna Kirtan Bhajan tunes, I stand as something of a old classic that still plays Vishnu John. Okay. What do you play? The harmonium and oh, murdanga. Yeah. And murdanga. Murdanga is the two-headed drum. Two-headed and a harmonium is like a, a pump keyboard a hand organ <laughs> right, a hand organ uh, uh, with a bellows on the back with a, be- a bellowed organ yeah it's a yeah. very interesting it's surprised it works really well with with meditative kind of yeah so now the jews i heard are doing their jewish kirtans on with the same instrument yeah interesting and it, 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 it's a, it's a nice fit for that um rhythmic lulling meditative and um uh you know when you're praying Right. When this was happening, did you feel like you were very different than the other kids around you? Very different doesn't have a context of what different was back then. There was, you know, this was meat and potatoes and, you know, blue jeans. And here was the Hare Krishnas. And we and were, you were one of them. I was one of them. And we were not only from another planet, but we were bald from another planet. Yeah. We were bald-headed, at, you know, in the hippie revolution. Yeah, but as a, but as a very young person, um, what were your impressions? Did you see this as a sort of a, a holy crusade to to improve the world around you, or did you feel, were you a misfit, or um, did you have a sense of the value of the mission? I did, in a surprising amount, and more so than almost any of the other kids that I knew. I actually took to the philosophy at seven and eight years old, I was known as the preacher. Mm. So I've always had a sense of, of analytical, surprising, you know, um, you know, analytical preaching. I was sort of 
I mean, part of it is the Italians were just looking for excuses to talk, but there is, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a reason why, like, you know, the good Lord chose Italians to, you know, spread the word. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, you get to go up there uninterrupted and talk and everyone has to listen to you for 20 to twenty to 50 minutes. Right. And then when you're not talking, you're singing. Right. Without conversation. So, so you, you actually meshed pretty well with it. It was well suited for your personality. Well, you know, it was really interesting because when they talked about reincarnation, it wasn't a, it just was, uh, it, it just was, part of it is just the acceptance of, of innocence. So, you know, when you're a yeah. child... There's there's no distinction between um, reality and what you told is reality. Right. Um, so there was no there there was it was an immediate um, world perception of karma, reincarnation, and God as a. But it it, it was reasonable to you, right? Um. It it uh, it it sat. It it was an. It felt very natural to me. Uh-huh. It just seemed. It just seemed to play with who it, it there was there was nothing foreign about it to me and there was no turnaround time or orientation so how long did this period last of um of being with your mother uh living in in dallas and traveling uh so that was uh from 73 until uh 76 when i went to india you moved to india yeah i went to school i was there for two years from 76 to 78 where in India? Primarily in Vrindavan, India, Matur. It's about, uh, if I remember correctly, 80 miles and kilometers from and the these are of Delhi. In India, these are, these are famous places of pilgrimage where the pastimes of Krishna took place upon this earth, in Vrindavan in particular. Well, there's a couple things. Going to India in the 70s was like going to Jupiter. Okay. I mean, we, okay. we we just yeah. don't we just don't realize how much the world has shrunk since then. Yeah. But whatever we feel in terms of of awe and distance of going to Mars, that is what it felt like going to India for you. Just in general, the context of what in of travel, not just me- India, yeah. traveling. Just right. you know, planes were just coming out from being high end luxuries for you know the one percent. Yeah. You know, for millionaires. And CEOs, it was just beginning to open up. And again, like I was saying, it was the tail end of people living and dying in the same house or the same neighborhood in the right. same city. And the hippies were the first ones to break yeah. that. And, and the beginning of car culture, really. I mean, that helped them move. Move around. Yeah, it's really interesting to be, as having grown up in India, I really, I really appreciated it. I really appreciated cars when I got back. Oh, really? Well, I did a lot of walking? Yeah, well... Walking barefoot on hot tarmac in between, you know, horse and 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 cow dung and and camel and and yeah, whatever so, you know, it's the, the, the but flat footed on top but, of it, which was. But did you say you were there for two years? The first time I was there for two years. And did you you went to school there? Went to school there. I mean, there was just so many. It, this was the beginning of the Hare Krishna movement, and they were just starting their temples there, and they just started their school there. And um, from what I understand, I need to confirm this. I've been wanting to confirm this. But from what I understand, the school was originally going to be in West Bengal, uh, which is where they had the first uh, group of American kids go, which is on the east, northeast coast. of It would be like the equivalent of Massachusetts or something. 
That's it's how, on the it's on the northeast uh, northeast uh, uh, part uh, of India. India. So um, they you know and we went the year after that and they were still there and they looked horrifically bad. I mean that was what do you mean? They were all skinny and you know unhealthy, were, uh, dysentery and malaria and really? and and uh, was, did you know them at any of them before they went? Yeah, we were all friends. They were the older boys, oh. the older boys class. So they sent them to India. Um, and Bengal was very, uh, very stark, and the Bengalis were very, um, they were significantly more aggressive than Uttar Pradesh, Brindavan. Aggressive? Which is the, what does that mean? Oh, exactly? they, you know, they're the, 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 they're the chili peppers of India. <laughs> they just. Oh, they're the Italians they, of India then. <laughs> uh, they'd be more like the, uh, the, the Italians of the Middle Ages. Okay. I mean, they were just... Fiery know, people. Ultra-fiery people. The Bengalis. Bengalis. So... And was this not a good fit for these boys that, that went ahead of you? Was, it, was, this, a, was this a mistake? Um, well, in context to uh, today's uh, um, standards of education, absolutely. But the 60s was a time, and, and the 70s was still still uh, completing that process of reorient, uh, uh, cultural reorientation. Right. And so deciding what was a, um, a uh, adventurous and cultural breakthrough mm. versus what was abuse hadn't been established yet. So there may have been a little of both. <sighs> Uh, there a was little, a, there little, was a lot of both. A lot of so, a lot of breakthrough and a lot of abuse. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I mean, by today's standards, it would be abuse. Back then, it would just be considered part of the price of adventure. But these kids, didn't, it was it was didn't volunteer intent. for this adventure, did they? Uh, well, the 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 context of it was one of privilege. That it was all the kids whose moms could collect money. In donations wow. that were allowed to go to India, and where are and they? And so we all wanted to go, and it was sort of like joining the Marines. You know, you might get your leg blown off, but you're the Marines, man. You know. So you were, to... you were, you were the um, the tip of the spear for the Hare Krishna movement, uh, in a way. Absolutely, I think that is one of the best descriptions of you know personifying who I, you know, what what I've been in my entire. How life. you've seen now? What now? What? Where are they now? The these older boys who who suffered from malnutrition and disease in Mayapur. The majority of them went off to uh, school after they got back and were able to adjust and, uh, you know, because the transition between the late, uh, the early 70s to the late 70s was that everything was turned upside. You know, we didn't really get, like I was saying, the standardization of education and treatment and yeah. all those things. They didn't really start coming into play until like the early 80s. And they caught the 80s and the 80s was a great time. And so they were able to do So they well, did okay. They, they weren't... Compared to... <laughs> in other words, if somebody went through that today, they would consider it to be damaged. Health and human services would arrive, I think, on the scene. Well, we would probably make national news at that point. Yeah. Okay. So, but you weren't in Mayapur. You were in Vrindavan. So then we started the festival in Mayapur, went to Vrindavan. What festival? 
Uh, so the devotees had festivals twice a year. One. No, wait a minute. You you're living in Vrindavan now. Well, hang on. Go to India. You and they go have to two India. festivals a year. Okay. Um, and they start in in West Bengal in Mayapur, and then they go to uh, central North India in Vrindavan, and we get to central uh, into Vrindavan. And we have a guest house that has 24-hour electricity and restaurants and nice food. And we go swimming and it's the Brudge Bossies. So at the end of that festival, which is, you know, it's about three weeks or a month long, they're like, okay, it's time for you to go back to Mayapur. And it's like, sorry, we're not going back because we really like Vrindavan. We're not going back to the Bengalis. We're not going back. It was just so harsh. The conditions there, just the facilities. Mm. Um and so uh, we were the budget, the school budget, because our moms, you know, my mom was donating $10,000 a month, which was probably what? Like fifty dollars to $60,000. She was doing $1,000 a day sometimes. Doing what? Donations at the airports. You're kidding me. In fact, the fundraising, hitting people up with paraphernalia, yeah. was started by my mom. What's her name? Jagadatri. So the devotees used to go out with uh, their magazines and incense, and they would say, hey, uh, you know, would you like a magazine? It talks about the Lord and the Hare Krishna movement. And they would come back with between, you know, 12 to 25 bucks, 35 bucks if they had a really big day. So um, she went to Dallas Gurukul, which was the boarding school after she brought me. And she said, I would like to go and collect some money to bring my son. I said, okay, but you have to do your quota. I think her quota was 30 bucks a day. And uh, you can't use any of the temple paraphernalia, you know, the incense and the magazines. You know, you just have to do it without taking from the temple. So there was flowers, those little yellow... Marigolds? Yeah. So she just picked those from, from, from grassy knolls. And then went up to people and handed them the flower and said, you know, I, I'm collecting a ticket to bring my son to this boarding school. And she came back, like on her first day, with 30 bucks in like 45 minutes to an hour. The next day, she did like 70 bucks in an hour and a half. And so uh, they were really impressed with that. And then she went to West Virginia, and there they had a crew of women about four or six women there going out and you know they were doing like 40 bucks a day they started doing flowers and they started doing 100 to 150 bucks a day and within two or three years that started going to 300 400 500 bucks a day as it evolved into a street peddling pitch of collecting money for starving kids etc and this uh technique is what paid for your trip or your being able to move to India. So the women that did that were the only ones that had any money in the Hare Krishna movement. <laughs> so they could afford to send their kids to India. Wow. So we were like the astronauts of the Hare Krishna. We not the Hare Krishna movement of America. Like oh yeah. my God, my cousin went to India and lives there. And lives there. I mean, there's this. There, there is, there is no context of how cool that was and how foreign that was. Yeah. In the on the planet today, like you would have to go to Mars well, in order to have that tell same me, coolness factor. Tell me about so that coolness factor is critical to understand the context of the suffering endured. 
Okay. Okay. And and I would assume that you 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 suffered. By today's standards, it would be considered suffering. I was young enough to be totally oblivious and the the adventurous, you know, religions. Are our martyr mar, martyr based, you know? <laughs> yeah, but you're a you're a martyr that survived. Uh, it's just it's just you know that's just martyrs, you know. We you know you make the sacrifices, you know, for yeah. your guru. It's it's the closest thing we have to it today would be like you know marine training. You go there and get the, you know, and you put yourself through that, and then you come but out they the other side. They don't destroy you. They don't destroy you. They they break you down, but then they build. They're you getting up. better at not destroying them, but you know it's taken them. But Decades. so I, you know, you know, I'm kind of wondering what were the, what were the, who are the casualties of this? Um, because there well, are that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, but let's get another. back okay, to okay. So, but the, the point is, is, is that um, when we said we're not going back, Robert said we'll build a school there in Vrindavan. So now we had our school there in India. That you attended in Vrindavan, and so there was a very first, there was a very strong sense of 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 identity with like we have that school because I was, you know. You know, I was uh-huh. complaining, so Prabhupada gave us. So I felt, uh, you know, a, a, a personal sense of, of um, um, ownership. Well, what was the school like? Did they speak English? Well, that was where we ran into the other problem. I mean, this was like dedicated, you know, 19 to 24-year-olds in India. Your in teachers? The yes. <laughs> Like the oldest one there was like 27 or something. He was considered to be the... Wow. Well, you know, I wouldn't know what happened. (laughs) This is interesting. My writing career started with putting... Actually, my writing career started with congregational programs. Um, But the congregational programs came from recognizing all of this... um, All of this failing. What failing? Well, the, the, the failing to the kids, failing, you know, to the mothers and the, the families. And so I started with newsletters that talked of the stories and the lives um, in the correspondence that I was having with my friends in their transition to the world from the Hare Krishna movement. The, and back into sort of what we would call normal society? Well, it wasn't back into. It was for us. It was our, you know, that was, that was our, you know... As joining the Hare Krishna movement was for Americans, us becoming Americans was what that was like for the Hare Krishnas. But I mean, wow, what a, what a, like, yeah, like you returned from Jupiter. And yes. Jupiter was your home now. But and I mean, we were trying to, you know, Mars, and we were trying to demartian de- de- ourselves. So there was definitely a, a reorientation. So, yeah, there was some, some, uh, so yeah. that so I wrote like my average newsletters would run about forty to sixty typewritten pages, you know, reduced, um, and it would cover you know twenty to forty kids, and it would talk of their experiences and the hardships. Well, who read of, this newsletter? Well, from that is what uh, led to the reform, the educational reforms in the child, um, the the child protective services of the Hare Krishna movement. Okay, uh, <laughs> it's a whole nother. That is a that is a. But they're all that's a, part- Well, first of all, that's I, I just want to say that that is a very important subject that that has not been touched upon in this podcast. I do hope to revisit it at some point. However, I think we're we're we're, we're into your biography right now, and it's very interesting. So, which gives the context to the social reform sense of 
um, um, pressing uh, passion okay. for okay. social economic reform, now, now, which is what led to where I am today. Where were you writing these newsletters? Were you writing newsletters in India Hawaii. or America? In Hawaii? Yeah, I moved to Hawaii by then. For, you, you moved to Hawaii from India? Uh, I moved to LA from India. But you know, we're Hare Krishnas, so there's a lot of traveling in between all of that, but you have sort of a home base. We used to have a joke. What are the three difficult questions to ask a Hare Krishna kid? Where are you from? What's your name? Because we have two sets of names. Mm -hmm. And what do you do? <laughs> so, you know, so that would, those were really like, uh, well, I'm sort of like from India, but like I was actually born in, you know, Manchester and, you know, I'm in California. Yeah. This was before traveling was done with, I mean, I can just appreciate the, the privilege that we have today with all the travel, with all the technology, with all the, with the ease of cultural interface. Yeah, the that was a very that was a very antagonistic, uh, you know, and 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 dangerous. I mean, anyone that was doing cultural adventurism paid a you know there was a price paid for the, for that. In and a lot you of paid ways. that price. The Hare Krishna movement paid it more virulently than almost any other. Mm. So you came back. You what, what two years in India. It was two years, 70, 76 to 78, and then I went back in 79 to 80, and then back in uh, 81 to 82, and then 84, then 94, and then 96. Each time you went back, were you looking forward to returning? To where? India or yeah, the U.S.? India. Both. Both. Well, the context as I got older was that it, it didn't occur to me that I would ever leave the Hare Krishna movement. I would never leave Prabhupada. Uh-huh. And that loyalty was instilled. So it didn't cross my mind to look anyplace else. And so one of the only places that had a context for a youth of the Hare Krishna movement, the temples didn't have it, was in India. So there was sort of wanting to go back to India and find that context. So you did look it. forward to your returns. Oh, I went back, you know, I, I, I pushed to go back. Okay, okay. So, so, uh, Vrindavan is the cent is the mecca of 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 Gaudiya Vaishnava Hinduism. Gaudiya and Vaishnava Hinduism is uh, sort of the fundamentalist of Hindus, if you will. Well, they're a particular flavor branch. They're not. They're sort of centerpiece. Well, for you, they are. No, no, just, you grew up ju in them. just theologically. In other words, Krishna is the centerpiece. Bhagavad Gita is the centerpiece. Well, Bhagavad Gita is, and is that's spoken by foundational Hindu, Hindu text. Not just in, in terms of its, its um, uh, reach to the Western world, but as a foundational, um, that, was the, that was the theological pillar of Hinduism. Because in, in the Hindu system, you had to support what you were saying based upon scripture. They were the law books for their day. And Bhagavad Gita was the single greatest, um, uh, uh, cons uh, not consolidation. Summation. Summation of all. So that was the, the most referenced and most translated. But that has nothing to do with the Gaudiya Vaishnavas being the centerpiece of Hinduism. No, Krishna is the centerpiece. Krishna. And okay. so Gaudiya Vaishnavism is, in other words, they have whatever it is, 80,000 or 30,000 you know, demigods. Yeah, uh, but the center of that is Krishna, according to you. Well, according to the theology of 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 Vedic culture, so there's there's 
there is a couple other competing. Sure. But they there's just, more they, than a couple. No, I mean in terms of being the supreme. In other like, words, yeah. they're, they're sort of like a hierarchy. So you have the you have the you, you sort of have like the Zeus, and then you have like the you the, know, the, the cabinet other, the members. Other, they're Olympians. Yes. Um, and so, what really sets Christian precedent in Vedic culture, in large part, is the Gita. Is yes. that is the centerpiece of their philosophical discourse. So, um, so you have Krishna, you have Shiva, and you have Ram. So there's some interchangeability. But given Bhagavad Gita's role and function in their, but their those equivalent all, of court, if you will. If you're a Vaishnav. If no, you're, no, no. If you're, if you're you know, in almost any of the others, the Bhagavad Gita plays that. Well, my understanding is that in Hinduism, there is no such thing as a heresy because there's no central uh, magisterium. So uh, everything is, is sort of subject to testing. And out of the, the massive churn that has come out of uh, India of, of, of uh, trials and attempts and experiments and this way and that way, uh, Krishna has survived that test of time. Krishna is still there. I imagine there are many, many thousands of gods who are worshipped, but aren't worshipped anymore, for one reason or another. They, uh, through the, the, um, the, the churning of, of cultural interaction, they just went away. Right? From what I've understood, um, the basis of their philosophical evolution was based upon their judiciary system, hmm. which was one of debate. So when you sat and debated, yeah. whoever won that debate, that was the new precedent. Like we yeah, have with courts. But there were lots of debates. So, that so was there was lots of debates. Ongoing. But here's, here's where it changes. When you win a court case here, that's now the new law. Yeah. When you want to debate there, whoever won, whoever lost, surrendered to the one that uh, surrendered to the person that won. In other words, if you're debating the truth, if somebody knows the truth better than you, then okay, I defer to you. You know the truth better than I. Okay. And the way that would work wasn't as a something judged by the you know the judge or um, well, yeah, the, who determined the winner? Unanimous decision. There, well, that it, good luck that, with that. that. That's the reason why it wouldn't take days. It wouldn't take weeks. It wouldn't take months. These would last sometimes years. They would sit there and argue it out until there was no one more that could contest. <laughs> well, it sounds to me a little bit like a very drawn-out democratic process where uh, you, know, you find out who's most popular in the end. There you have it. So that was there, but that was there. It would it carried as much weight as a a, a court, a court's okay, judgment. Okay. So you see, for example, with Buddhism, Buddhism was the national religion, and what makes that so profound was is that it's one of the only religions that wasn't enforced by the tip of a blade. It was done by a matter of heart conversion. So you had Hinduism, and then Buddhism suddenly arised. Ashok became a Hindu, and that was now instantly overnight the national religion and then suddenly it just disappeared why did it suddenly disappear why because they lost the debate they couldn't win so the protocol was if you can't win the debate 
you surrender. Okay, okay. And so well, they wouldn't surrender, so then they went to Tibet and China and Japan. So, so you're, you're bouncing back between India and where? Well, just to, to finish that thought, so what Gaudiya Vaishnavism is, yeah. was the primary personalities that would take the debate and take it around to, you know, Lord Chaitanya traveled all over India, Madhvacharya traveled all over India, Shankaracharya yeah. traveled all over India, and they would establish these, these, okay, here's the latest understanding, here's the latest court ruling. Right. And they would become Acharyas. But they didn't have, you know, telephones and, you know, they didn't even, you know people walked, Lord Chaitanya walked all of India. Yeah. And so those pockets where he stopped and said, here's the latest and defeated, uh -huh. the, you know, they, they had their, you know, here's the little template of, of your ideas and here's the reason why they don't work. And it's like, okay, you win. Um, oh, they well, would... I can't imagine too many people saying, oh, you win. <laughs> like, who's going to say that? That's, would... that's the, that is the process of guru and disciple. That they would sit there no, and we're argue. talking about different gurus debating yes not guru disciples well until one of them won the gurus but would, how do you win that nobody else can everyone in the assembly not one person left in the assembly can counter what it is well, that you're it, saying it sounds like form of populism well or in intellectual or or spiritual uh, insight but you have to win the crowd over somewhat but when it comes to the acharyas it's not going to just be like i won the crowd so the way the the way the Indians would debate, for example, scripturally, is one person would specialize in Mahabharata, or you know, a couple of people would spe they would know every verse verbatim, uh -huh. and then somebody else would specialize in uh, in the Ramayana, and somebody else in the Atharva Veda and the uh, yeah. Yajur Veda, and so then the 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 lead, the Acharya, the Guru, he would make his points, and then he would quote verses, and then if they wanted to reference it, the one that specialized in it. So they would have, you know, their attorney crew, if you will, uh, specializing <laughs> yeah, in that. Yeah, a panel of experts. They would have, and, and they would go at it, and they would go back and forth until everyone came to an agreement. It's pretty profound, actually. Well, I mean... If you could contest sound, it... I mean, it sounds good, but I mean, it's like, yeah, it probably looks good on paper, but I'm not sure exactly how exactly this Well, as out. an example... Uh, so Shankar, uh, Buddha came along and he said, this is the way of salvation. And nobody could beat him. So then yeah. Buddhism was now in. Then Shankar came and said, here's the, here's the downfalls of Buddhism. And they couldn't defeat him, so they left. Well, you so know, then, there's a very combative tone here. Absolutely. Because you didn't study to, you didn't study to convince somebody. You studied, or that was the end of, when you lost the debate. Imagine, what was it, the 700 Club that had like 2 million or 4 million followers? Uh -huh. If I went and debated Pat Robertson and won, all of his 4 million followers would now become mine. So, I mean, they <laughs> this was a play to win contest. They're, yeah. they're, they're, well, so were there dirty tricks? No, because it's all open. Well, I don't know. We're talking about ancient history. How no, do you know well, this happened? Well, we're, well because uh, the, this was a very literate culture. And, and they were they're literate as much in in precision as they were in writing. There was one of the most educated cultures of, of their era. And that's what the histories are saying. And so what Gaudiya Vaishnavism represents is those evolutionary steps of philosophical understanding. But again, they were just in pockets. So you had the old school that didn't get to hear about what the latest court case is, and they're still doing their old. 
but then there is a progression of philosophical recognitions. So, as an example, uh, one of the premises is, is that all religions fit into one of two categories. God's either a person or God's an energy. Mm-hmm. So that's like... Which is saying God is a person or he's not. So, well, not just that he's not, but that there's a, there is a an, an impersonal void or force that's ruling versus a personality. Yeah. So you had Shankara and Buddha saying God's not a person, that he's the you know nirvana, and then you have Madhvacharya saying, well, it's not just void, but this is the this world is the expression of that void, and then you have Madhvacharya saying, you can't call this a deep sleep, this illusion of consciousness and that one of, you know, one of us wakes up and that consciousness is awake and the rest of, in other words, in a sleep, uh, in a dream, you can have many personalities in the dream, but when you wake up, all those dream and all those personalities end, you can't have, be awake and asleep at the same time dreaming. Mm -hmm. And to do so is now creating um, a diversity. So now there's the, there's now the consciousness that's not an illusion, and there's the consciousness that is. So okay, that, yeah, yeah. We don't have to get into the. But the point is, 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 is that you now you can't say that they're one. Now you've created a, okay. a distinction. Then Lord Chaitanya came, and he said, "Yes, God is both a person and an energy." So this is what makes Lord Chaitanya the latest cutting edge. This is that you guys are both right. But it's it, but the yeah, God is a person you, you and God the part is... about where that's inconceivable, and so to say that is just like why can't we just all get along? Because it's not conceivable. It doesn't make sense. That conclusion was Lord Chaitanya. That's the reason why he was the Martin Luther King of his day. Oh, the Martin Luther King of his day. That's it. Was like it doesn't matter if you're born a Kshatriya, a Brahmin, Vaishya, a Sudra. These are four castes. Those are the, the, the it doesn't matter what you are because we're all spirit, soul, and we're there to redevelop our relationship with the Lord. And and he was the hippie of his day in terms of the cultural context. You know, he was out dancing with the wild okay. men. Okay, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Let and me... they were saying, this is, you're giving the most sacred of our mantras. But you know, you're, the... you're very, I... And what, so then Lord tell Ch- me this. You, you envision Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, of 500, 500 years, years ago, ago in Bengal. You really see him in the context of 1960s America. Yeah. Well, it's not that I see him. That's his, that, from what I understand, that's his historic context. In other words, that there's we a worship cor- him. There's a correlation. To there's what a historic evolution. So just like in America, you know, first it was, you know, women found their right and then the blacks found their right. And then, you know, so Lord Chaitanya is that pinnacle of philosophical, spiritual, evolutionary insight and understanding culminating in, if you just chant Hare Krishna, you get the download of, of love of God, and it covers everything, which is ridiculous yeah. for all the others, but they wouldn't ever, um, they knew better than to argue with Lord Chaitanya because you lost. Well, my understanding was that... So that was, that okay, was now, the context of the debate. Same no, thing with Bhakti Siddhanta. He lived in a Muslim society, and he lived with Muslim rulers. And my understanding is that the reason they didn't apprehend him, he was very popular and led, led mass movements, 
They didn't apprehend him for the same reason that you can plead insanity in a court in America today. They thought he was crazy and they didn't want, they, there, there is a, a, among civilized people, well, many people, you don't want to get tangled up with a crazy person. No, it was more sinister than that. And what was sinister is, is that by using the, the Quran, Lord Chaitanya defeated ideologically the Muslims that went after him. Now, and the whoa, context, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on, the, hold the context. On. I know, I know. I'm not, I'm not subscribing to that statement because uh, he I had don't... the mass movement behind him, but when he they tried not... to confront him theologically, he got the better of them. That's what makes Lord Chaitanya so unique. Is is that he won every one of his arguments. He won every court case, their version of a court case. That's the reason why he was able to spread far and wide. Otherwise, the resistance would have stopped him as they did so many others. And there was a resistance. There was a resistance, all of which he won without exception, which just doesn't happen unless you're an Acharya. And he didn't just do it in Muslim India. He did it in the heart of the most, uh, most orthodox fundamentalist of Hinduism, which was South India. So he did both North India. Well, Bengal isn't in South India. Yeah, but he went. He went. He went through South India. Okay. He went to Vrindavan, and he went to South India, and then he came back up. Okay. And he hit every cultural, religious um, diversity and contest, and won them. Okay. So well, Lord Chaitanya would... isn't just somebody who said, "Let's pray." He is somebody. He's the trial lawyer version of okay. his day. I, I need to hear this history for context from a non-Hari Krishna. Because I need to know that what you're telling me isn't biased. Have you heard of the Chaitanya Charitamrita? Sure. So it, this it, is a it, this is a uh, a work, a work in, of in, in Bengali in yeah. the Bengali language. Original. And so it talks about his travels and all the different dozens of groups that he met and what their conversations were and right. how he did. So yes, I would. I I haven't. I haven't spent a lot of time um, finding the academic backups to yeah. that but in terms of its cultural context when you are in conversation with other indians that is the that is the insinuated or inherent you know the implicit understanding right. um okay okay so how that how that has been played out by western historians and and I don't, you know, I'm not familiar enough. I didn't take the time to do it. But that's yeah. the context. But that's something that ISKCON should probably square away. Absolutely. As it moves forward. Very much into so. The future. And this is something um, that I would, I would love to do. Okay. So, you were raised in the Hare Krishna movement. You even were among the, the, the pioneers who went to I'm India. I'm a pioneer of the Hare Krishna movement. And... Second generation. There was a, a period of moving back and forth from India to where? From India to where? Sometimes New York, sometimes West Virginia, sometimes Dallas, sometimes Europe. Were these at ISKCON temples in these places? Or where did you live? Yeah, they were all temples. So that was the thing. Was but you lived in temples. When we you, li you lived in temples. So today you can show up in a town and you have a public transportation infrastructure and you have a housing infrastructure of hotels. That wasn't in, that just wasn't in place. Like if you didn't know somebody, yeah. they just didn't have the the hotels would be the equivalent of 
paying four thousand bucks in today's dollars or three thousand bucks in today, you know that that was sure. just starting to come online okay. by the late seventies. So, so we traveled more because we had room board when we got to wherever our destination yeah. was. <clears throat> but you were always uh, more or less traveling within the circles of the Hare Krishna community. Completely, yeah. That, and that's how you grew up, right? So. My first time outside of that contact, the first time I was immersed outside the Hare Krishna temple was with my marriage to now, my wife. And now, where did you meet her? In Hawaii. And was she a Hare Krishna? No, she was. She well, was how did that happen? Destiny. Okay, sure. I, I, Is the short I'll answer. buy that. And, Is the and, short answer. And, and uh, how did that destiny manifest? Um... So uh, she was a, a yogini there to do a... Um, a yogini is a, a, a woman who practices yoga. practices yoga. So she was on some retreat and turned out to be a fraud. And the only one that she knew on the island was me. So I got a call from her and I went and rescued her at you know, 930 at night in my little Toyota Tercel. Oh, wow, what a story. 250,000 miles, the two-door hatchback. <laughs> and I was like... And then she came to my... You know, my, at that point, it was like 80-year-old, run-down, unfixed-up, you know, house. Uh-huh. Like, in other cities, it would be like, you know, the, what do you call it, the, you know, the, 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 the trashy neighborhood. But there, it's a, it's a plantation home in Hawaii, so it just doesn't have quite that context. It right, right. But you old, rescued her. From, I rescued Was her. it a dangerous situation? Well, it was dangerous in that it was at the top of the mountain um, at night. Uh, they gave her a tent spot. They were charging her 2500 bucks. She had to cook outside, which she couldn't do, so she was eating canned food, you know, for two days. And this was a uh, yoga retreat? This was supposed to be a yoga retreat. Anyway, it was just just a horrible. And so um, I had electricity, a warm bed, a dry house. <laughs> you had, hot, you had uh, amenities, yeah. Hot bed, a hot <laughs> bath. I cooked food. I, yeah. Well, it turns out, which I didn't discover until about two months later, that she was a multi-multi-millionaires. What? So the family was worth like three hundred million or something. Uh huh. One hundred fifty. And uh, at that point, were you uh, deeply in love, or or um, what uh, was going on? What? Um, I hadn't actually really found myself as a man. Uh huh. And so she's a six foot. Uh, um. Columbia graduate, Russian, New York City, multi-Jewish, you know. So she loved me. I just, and um, I was a little, I was great. This is a great story, by the way. I was great at converting her over from being the black sheep, psychic yogini of her Russian family into a woman of the world. So that's what I did for her. So, now, wait a minute. How could you, having grown up in the Hare Krishna movement, introduce someone in, into being of the world? You weren't of the world. You were from, from Mars. Um, well, having been a devotee, yeah. you see all these amazing... So I got to see all these amazingly spiritual, spiritually sincere, wonderful people have these extraordinary experiences and breakthroughs. Yeah. And then just not be able to transition into the world. Mm. So, you know, and then my friends went through that and I went through that. So I became something of, I'm really good at sort of transitioning you from 
becoming a practicing spiritual religious person into becoming somebody you know somebody in the world. So who I, like pays bills and goes to work, family and more than more than the responsibilities of it about recognizing the gifts that you have mm. and the context that they play and the reason why you have them to accomplish your life's mission. And is this an, an insight you've always had? Is this something, a, a natural ability? Um, I think it's from working as a preacher because when you say a preacher, you're really talking about being a guru and a guru is somebody that interfaces you with your destiny. That's really my term, that is my, my definition of a guru. You know. But you, you, so as a you preacher, can... you sit there and you go, well, here's what your issues are. Let's get those out of the way. This is what your strengths are. Here's their application. And here's a sense of, you know, the kinds of, of, of interface that you have in the world with them. Okay. So okay. it's a, it's a, it's now become a strength of mine. And you were able to, um, do that for her, to help her in that way. Right. So she, uh, would, was put into a mental institution um, and uh, she was there for like a year or two years, and she, it turns out she was a psychic, you know, her dad was a Soviet-era atheist. So when she's yeah. talking about seeing ghosts and intuition, mm. that was, those were like red flags to him. So one night yeah. we were... <laughs> you know, Not just to him. And, and that, that, was her, that was her life experience. That was what was playing out with her. And it just scared her because the context yeah. was, and you're it, insane. And it frightened her it, parents it, too. I'm and sure. it frightened her parents. So they put her in what they thought was a good program, which we would recognize as like, what do they call it? A gulag? A gulag. What are they? Gulag? Is <laughs> yeah. it you know, where they... A prison, you know. A gulag archipelago. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So like one night we were sleeping in the... Uh, back the very back of of uh, Waipio Valley in Hawaii, which is where all the priests and warriors were, um, you know, was, you know that was their area. So she wakes me up in the middle of the night. And she goes, "I see like a white people, you know, white thing," and I'm so tired. You know, I grew up in India. I mean, if you want to talk about ghost men, they have such a scary ghost in India and they're really powerful men like I was getting hit really hard in India really oh my god it was so intense but anyway so I'm in Hawaii and you know I was getting hit when I was a kid in India I'm an adult now I just sort of grew up with them I was like oh don't worry about that that's just ghost just tell them to go away (laughs) I was just absolutely exhausted so um, I wake up the next morning and she is really pissed that like I just abandoned her in the middle of I'm like, honey, I was right there if anything really got out of hand. Mm-hmm. So what she did is she started off in the right-hand corner and said, I would like you to leave now. Um, I'm trying to rest here. Please go. And she went around the room. By the time she finished, they had all left. Oh. And she fell asleep. Okay. So to tell that kind of story to her dad is insanity. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, that is extraordinarily impressive. You not only could see them, but they honored your request because you have a working relationship with them, and that's because you're actually like a priestess. You are, you know, my definition of religion is intergener- uh, interdimensional relationship. So you can talk with ghosts or angels or devils or your forefathers. That's that's my my definition of religion. And I said this is very powerful and it's very extraordinary. And she, her intuition is just exceptional. So you validated her her inner self. I gave her basically. a context of it. Yeah. And that was just very empowering for her. And then we had a child and I really pushed them very we bought twenty million dollars worth of real estate and the mom and dad were mortified that I pushed them into it, but they went off and made Where it. was this real estate? All over the world. Russia, you know, Slovakia, Florida uh, we looked at properties in Africa. 
Tanzania. <laughs> uh, well, uh, why? Hawaii. Hawaii. Why? Uh, because I recognize uh, I have a sense of market trends. You know, I mean, I I was born in the '60s in in LA when it was, uh, you know, ranch land with little so, suburbs <clears throat> and you know little developments in between it. By the '70s, it was suburbs with ranch land in between it, and by the '90s, uh, it was just one big suburb with the ranch lands pushed out to the outer city. And by 2000, they had taken those suburbs and turned them into apartment complexes. And so you thought, oh, the same thing will happen in Tanzania. The same thing will happen in Slovakia. The... It did happen in Slovakia. Yeah. So it was a it was a successful investment. Well, her dad tried to do it without her, so he got cheated. And she went and saved saved it. She actually saved the entire family business by saving. Well, I I suspect that that's a whole nother podcast uh, episode explaining. Anyway, so that, that was the that's how. So I don't know how okay, we ended we have, up there. We have a we have a nice summary, uh, I think, of where you're at. You have uh, a context of what my experience is. Yes, I mean, in I think order that's to important. say this is. This experience is what I used in order to develop where do, the where do economic you, policies. Where do you live now? My home base is Hawaii. Okay. Why are you on in Potomac, Maryland? We have a simple solution to the healthcare crisis uh, now that the Republicans have finally run out of and, all their and options. And we again? Well, again, Guerrilla Economics is the one that helped me do it. I uh, talked with a number of different devotees and developed... I mean, this is the process of, wait, wait, of wait. a thousand pieces of a hundred, you know. Of you are a specialist in interdimensional relationships, and you're in DC to tell religion us. Religion is a religion. My definition of religion is interdimensional relationship. And you have come here to solve the healthcare crisis. The simple solution to the healthcare crisis is lifestyle insurance. Fifty percent of all medical costs is lifestyle related. If we, uh, the bulk of that cost is covered by government programs, if that was handed over to lifestyle markets, we'd be able to reduce the cost burden. Now, okay, to, you're let going, me let me finish that sentence. Okay. We would be able to reduce the cost burden to government programs by as much as 50%. I understand that you just gave me an elevator pitch. I lost track there because you were talking fast. So I, I, I sort of, I, I lost it, but I did. The members I, of Congress get it when I approached that, that. That is an elevator pitch. And um, <laughs> who are you pitching? Wait, 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 hold on. Say, say that again, would you? Give me the pitch again. Number one, the one thing that both parties agree to is that 50% of all medical costs is lifestyle related. Smoking, drinking, gambling, prostitution. This is where 50% Sedentary of our money lifestyle, yeah. is going to. So during the Obama debates, they said what is, you know, about every hour and a half, somebody would turn to somebody else and say, you know... 50% of all medical costs, and they would sort of chuckle about it. And I'm like, guys, if that's 50%, that would be a great place to start. Yeah. So when, you know, I was doing real estate in New York, you know, I had a couple hundred thousand dollars. I took about 30000 of that, hired an economics group to start looking at the cost of it. Okay, okay. Now, I, I have a, a, a an issue, and that is that you're telling me Fifty percent of of healthcare costs are going to uh, because of people's behavior. Correct. I'm, that's and not so me. That's a universal. You can fix that, but you need everyone to change their behavior. No, the way no. is to do anything different. That's okay. the cool thing about it. Okay, I, I like that. Uh, keep keep going, please. So, um, 
what we so what we would um, we would uh, replace uh, we would now have lifestyle markets take over the services being offered by government programs. So as an example, um, we would take all the smokers presently being covered by the VA, the Veterans Affairs, and we would take them over to this program dedicated exclusively to dealing with smoking-related illnesses. And we would take the smokers from Medicare and Medi-Cal and Social Security. And so we would now be able to have develop a program as a specialized medicine to take care of all the smokers. Freeing up all these government programs, they don't have to worry about the smoking side of their veterans. Well, what, what, do, you, what do you mean, take care of them? Well, we give the example of tobacco. It's one of our favorite examples because we spend $100 billion a year treating smokers. Yeah. That's a trillion dollars over the next decade. So right now, that's subdivided between two to 400 different healthcare providers for smokers. So they don't get the buying power okay, of a wait, trillion wait, wait. dollars. We're, no, we're getting we're getting into technical details, and I don't have well, I don't have the bigger picture. But let me let me finish by saying, if we could take that trillion dollars and put it behind one program, you could go to Kaiser Permanente and say, "Hey, listen, uh, we want double the service uh, for this trillion dollars for six hundred billion dollars. In other words, half double the service at half the price of what." Like, what are you doing? What are you offering? Well, whatever the healthcare services are for smokers now, we want double that service for smokers. Double it? Yeah. You, you, so you're going you're gonna, to um, give them their lung operations, chemotherapy? All of it. You're going to say, if you smoke, we want you. We'll take care of you. Exactly. Okay. And what about people with leukemia? So hang on. Before we move on to that, try to understand that we're already spending a trillion dollars on that right now for smokers. So we will now have a trillion dollar budget. It's already there. Uh-huh. Now dedicated to dealing with smokers on a, with one single program specializing in it. So what sort of led to that? Well, wait a minute. I don't understand. I don't, I don't get it yet. Uh, so that's where this example will help you. Okay. Did you ever hear of Michael Malcolm from the 80s, the old junk bond uh, uh, mm, trader that was thrown familiar. in prison? He, you know, went to prison for, you know, cheating on his, his trades. Gets out of prison, has t- testicular cancer. Uh-huh. So he goes to look for a remedy, and there's like six different parties studying it. And he goes, guys, I'll double your budgets if you all work together. They were able to do more in the first year of working together than they were able to do in the previous decade working separately. Yeah, but it helped so to have can... a very rich guy with testicular cancer who was interested in that particular thing. You got it. So that's exactly it. And all he was offering is what? 500 million, 300 million? Imagine a trillion dollars. We're not talking about a billion. No, I can't imagine a trillion dollars. I don't know what that means. Exactly. What that means is significantly more service. Let's let's back up a little bit. Before we get into policy here, um, you're saying, like, are you trying to uh, reform healthcare in America? Or are you trying? What, what is it? Can, can you? Can we? Can we sort of back out a little bit and, and and get a bigger perspective here? What is it that you want to change? It's not so much a change. I'm not. I'm not doing this for a matter of change. I'm doing this as a, a matter of, of consideration. 
that right now, one of the universals in the healthcare debate, from anyone that's familiar with it, is that lifestyle is runs as much as 50% of the cost. Okay. So we should start with that as a premise of conversation. So what we've done is we've provided working models of examples of how that could work to start that conversation. And it turns out that this is... Um, this seems to be the magic bullet to make healthcare significantly more manageable and uh, affordable. Well, you know, you might want to hurry because the legislation is next week. <laughs> yeah. Therefore, I spent my last pennies to come out here to do to it. To influence that debate. To, to, not to influence it, to say, guys, this is the answer you've been looking for. So the, I wrote Whoa. the book back in Obamacare debates. That's you wrote where, what book? It was called, uh, it was called um, Responsibility for One's Own Products and Actions. And then The Economist got a hold of it and so converted the name to uh, Lifestyle Insurance. So I waited 10 years for this to happen again and it's happening next week. Yeah. So I rewrote that 444 page book with a thousand references and 40 charts and condensed it into a 40 page book of which is summarized in the four page introduction to it. Well, that's what, what I'm taking can our, where can our listeners find this book? It's on uh, Facebook called Lifestyle Insurance. Lifestyle Insurance. Okay. And uh, also at lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. Uh-huh. Um, under the same name, Lifestyle Insurance. Well, you know... Um, I wanted to have a free download, but it there's some kind of process involved... And I just didn't have time to it. So the hard copy is there for 19 bucks. Okay. And I, once I can figure out how to All right. now, do it so it can be a free download yeah, and e-publication. I, okay. So, so that's where your sort of policy uh, um, suggestions and, and ideas are, are sort of where you can find them. But, that but, is for how... So this lifestyle insurance is the biggest demonstration... Of our, of of our economic platform. Our economic platform is, uh, when you talk about good and bad, you're talking about economic outcomes. When you talk about something good, it has a good economic outcome. When you talk about something bad, it has a bad economic outcome. And our policy platform is very simple. If you have a, if you create an economic liability, cover the cost of it. That's our policy platform. So lifestyle insurance is a demonstration. Of that of that premise. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I like that. That's big picture. <laughs> That's, yeah. Okay. Um, who have you uh, talked to so far? Uh, I got into the hands of uh, Orrin Hatch. Okay. Uh, with that one sentence, 50% medical costs covered by government, uh, put it in market, lifestyle markets, you reduce the cost of government programs 50%. He said, that sounds good. I'm interested. Get me a copy. Um, I happened, and he just happened to finish his press release, and that's where I gave it to him, a press conference. Um, Happened to catch uh, uh, Collins, Susan Collins from Maine, Mm -hmm. the one who voted no, and she just happened to be finishing. I just happened to be walking by. Lord's making these arrangements. So I happened to walk with her to the elevator, down the elevator. And gave her the pitch, the elevator pitch? pitch. So I gave her about three or four minutes. What you've heard from me is about uh, under 30 seconds. Um, So she seemed to be impressed with it. Um, I got it to Warren. 
I think from Virginia or Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I forgot his, he's a Democrat. And there was another fellow who was really cool and he seemed interested. Um, and I got into the hands of about 15, uh, House of Representative members. Okay. So they're all coming back. Well, I like And their... hitting them up with that line seems to really take them, uh, they seem to take note of it. I like your chutzpah. I think it's good. I think you're, um, you're out there like, I'm going to make change. I'm going to go to the United States government and tell them what, what they should do. For the reason being that I'm confident that I have what they want. Okay. In other words, I didn't try to do this over the last 10 years because that's not what they were about. Yeah. But right now, they're looking. I have what you want. That's why I'm here. Uh-huh. So I'm not trying to bully them into something that this is what I'm about. Yeah. I'm saying... Um, not that bullying would be a good strategy at this point. Not, 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 not in Congress. <laughs> you know, they call it security and you can never go to any of those buildings again. So I'm only doing it because I waited to know... You know, it's like somebody saying, you know, I have a stomach ache. And you're saying, I know you don't want to talk to anybody right now, but I have the thing that happens to okay. take care of stomach aches. Now, how is, how is this related to the Hare Krishnas? This is based upon that, that paradigm of good and bad, of love and hate, of um, morality. Do you think this is a moral thing to do, what you're suggesting? Um, I think that it is utilizing morality's um, a signposts to mm. uh, um, uh, better uh, uh, better coordinate your yourself in life. If this is implemented, where will you be active in its implementation? And he said that uh, they will allow me. Um, here's the reason why. <laughs> here's, the, yeah. here's the reason why I'm pretty sure it will go through. It's just a question of time before you know, that I get the media coverage for it when that happens. The insurance companies, we're talking about privatizing between five to $20 trillion worth of government services. Insurance companies will be ecstatic. Wall Street will get to issue that. They'll be ecstatic. So as a matter of implementation, it's only a question of time before it percolates up and they hear about it. So that's my confidence. How long do you have to implement this? What? Well, in other words, the Republicans have until next Friday. To, to, to do you this. Mean... Now you understand. So, like I said, two weeks ago they had three uh, healthcare proposals on the table. A week ago uh, it was one, and as of yesterday, none. So uh -huh. I'm wondering if that is the good Lord. That's another thing I would like to. That is the good Lord clearing the you know yeah. clearing the table. That's another thing I would like to compliment you on is that you know what's going on. I I, I admire that. Uh, that you're aware of what the United States government is doing. Just so you know, the intensity of politics yeah. in the Hare Krishna movement is so much more convoluted and complicated and intricate that American politics become relatively easy and simple. Really? Oh, absolutely. Can you, can you tell me any war stories? Um... Uh... So when Prabhupada left, there was this controversy, was there, uh, was there um, successors or was there a system to carry on with Prabhupada? So they took one word, henceforth I think it was, and they debated that word. And then they're taking references from, you know, the lineages of, you know, a half a dozen different, you know, spiritual 
acharyas or leaders. Yeah, and then they then they have Prabhupada's let and it's like it's so layered and it's so intricate and there's so much history that dealing with American politics is like is 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 it's not kindergarten, but it's it's a little bit a little bit less than high school. It's okay. not it's not it's not complicated. For if they had if the, if the politicians had to deal with the Hare Krishna movement, they would just have a meltdown. It just it's like guys, I just well, I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, you're probably right there. Um, so the Hare Krishna is, pro- here, is great. Bengali politics is great training if you want to get into them. Oh, know, okay. You know, Western politics. Same thing. I mean, they're just so they're just so. You know, it, it sounds petty. Okay, now here's a problem, though, and this is this, this is um, this is constructive criticism. When when you do, you know, at various times I've pressed you on when you say we who we are. I think you need to be coming from a stronger identity of who you're working with. Right now? Yeah, <laughs> it's me. Well, that's in, that's a problem because if you're not representing a constituency. It's very hard to have a voice. Absolutely. So that's the problem that I'm running into. But I'm really appreciating that it's that one that steps up. That yes. where things sit. So who's the... So as of last night, I have one other person for the first time in 10 years that said I'm going to share this with some buddies. Okay. So now we're like one and a quarter. Okay. Yeah. That's, and my that's girlfriend right. might be coming right over. And so I can see that's what it is. I'm appreciating with Prabhupada. I mean... You know, I'm trying to do this. And what's the challenge? I have a temple and I come and take prashad and I have, you know, I have like it's this like Bengali a, grandma a that's taking care of me. And I get to go rub shoulders and, you know, give politicians a hard time with what seems really sort of simple and obvious to me. And I sort of woo them. I mean, yeah. the, the challenges seem relatively amusingly simple as compared to Prabhupada. Well, but you do need an invested constituency in order to sort of implement the scale of the changes you're talking about. No. All you need is divine arrangement. See, the thing well, is, is that yeah, everyone you keeps trying to... God isn't, God isn't your servant. You're his. Exactly. So you, but you but say... You just hit it on the head. This is his mission. This is his well, service. Well, well, I'll be the judge of that. I don't think you can tell that. I don't think you can tell me that you're on a mission from God. If you can't, you're out of step. We're all, we should all recognize our relationship with the Lord. If we can't, that is our illiteracy. That is our ignorance. Mm. The definition of ignorance is being out of step with the Lord. Morality is when you're starting to step, yeah, you know, starting to dance with the Lord. Sometimes, yeah, we're, then we're veering to this, into this thing where, um, so you're uh, basically a spokesperson for God. We should all be a spokesperson for God. That's what parenting is. That's what romance is. That uh-huh. is what our. Well, what about people expression- you disagree with? Well, the, where Hinduism comes in is recognizing that, you know, different relationships and different functions can be at cross purposes, you know, so, you you know, you have, you, you have the nurse and she's there to take care of you, even though you just tried to rob a bank and the cops are there trying to catch you. As a nurse, you're there to take care of them. As a cop, you're supposed to pull them in. But if you're neither a cop nor a nurse, if you try to apprehend them or take care of them, you're out of bounds. Yeah. So they okay. recognize that okay. functionality and and that kind of context. I like that. 
That's good. Well, I, I realize the importance of that because the Hare Krishna movements miss that. In the name of being elevated and spiritual, they put aside the, the, the social protocols that is the safeguards of the Vedic Indian system. Mm. And so the, the, the bulk of their chaos is due to having failed to properly recognize, honor, and implement those protocols as, as an example. Um, a leader is there to reprimand those that do wrong and are unjust. The purpose of a guru is there to provide you shelter even in your darkest hour. When the guru is the leader, now you have, a, you, you have cross purposes. Mm. This is the reason why the guru should not be the managerial leader. Right. The management saying you stole money. You're, you you know, well, uh, you know, uh, we have to have we have to turn you into the cops. Give me your best prediction of where you're going to be in a month. Uh, where are you going to be at the beginning of November? I have no idea. It, I mean, it, I will have to see if if the Republicans take this and run this. I will be in Wall Street putting packaging these companies. If I can get some publicity of this, and I'll go back and use that publicity to launch the campaign for our political party. If I just What's get the name of the party? American Shopping Party. American Shopping Party? Sustainability begins with how we spend our money, every dollar's a vote. Uh, we would like to get 300,000 residents of Hawaii buying locally made one day a month on the first Saturday. Okay. If we show up with a half a million shoppers, every store will carry something locally made. Get uh, 15 to 20% of the tourists to join us. It's $2 billion a year in new business for local business. Here's a question that I'm... I'm uh, that I always ask in this podcast because it, it, I find this to be very interesting. ISKCON provides um, uh, different ways to engage in devotional service, also known as bhakti yoga. Where is it that you find the most fulfillment and pleasure within the Hare Krishna movement? You know, there's the pleasure, but then there's the shelter. Yeah. So... You can take pleasures, but you need your shelter. But I'm talking about the pleasure of being engaged in deity worship, the pleasure of, of being involved in The greatest in shelter for me has been the chanting. Uh, the japa? The chanting, the japa chanting. And so that's, that's chanting uh, on beads. The chanting on the beads, uh, the Hare Krishna mantra. About probably two hours a day. Yeah, it takes me about two and a half. And that, to you, is your... All my writing has come from my chanting. Interesting. That, if, if I don't do the chant... When I, when I have... When I, it's like, okay, I'm going to write, I have to go and do my chanting first. Uh-huh. Like, I can get by without chanting when I'm not writing. Uh-huh. But I can't write without the chanting. Interesting. The, ch the, the writing is the... Is the... Is the... Um, is the... Is the channeling of the holy names. So you find that to be fulfilling, that practice? I find that allowing me to connect with um, the equivalent of my higher self. Mm -hmm. That's where I connect with my guru. That's where I connect with Krishna. That's where I find my shelter. That's where I'm a devotee because of my chanting. Then there is many other things. I mean, the joy well, sure, is, there's, is there's, the festivals. There's the many things that, going on. But, but the, at the end of the day, you know, if I have no devotees, I have no prasadam, I have no kirtan, I have no deities. I have to have the chanting. Okay. Very good. Very good. I can't do without the chanting. I can go without the rest. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that, that, that was my question. Very nice. 
Well, and I think this is a, is a good place to wrap up our interview. Thank you very much for talking to me. Um, this is Questions for the Sages. I'm Michael Sherrod. Aloha and Hare Krishna. Thanks again to Raghunath Das for agreeing to this interview. The coming week will be critical to your plan, and I wish you all success. Thanks to Rico Hayes for the theme music, and to Miriam Lansky for discussions about how to approach the subject matter of the podcast. Thank you also to the Hare Krishna community of Potomac, Maryland, for making this podcast possible. I'm Michael Scherer, and you've been listening to Questions for the Sages.